What's up, everyone? You're listening to the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm your host, Mason Kern, joined as always by site publisher Chris Cartman. Chris, a lot to get to today, but first off, just how's it going, man? What's new? Man, it just feels so weird, Mason. You know, like for the majority of my adult life by far, uh, you, you know, you're, you're, you go through all of August, it's camp, then you get to the very end of August into the beginning of September, everything is geared toward your season preview content and that first game. And, um, you know, I'm sort of like, uh, like, like a kid without his puppy right now or something. <laughs> I, I don't know, man. It's just, it feels weird. I'm not, I don't like it. I, I want the routine. Uh, you know, obviously a lot of people have much more serious problems than I do. I'm not trying to make light of anything in that respect. And I, I feel for everybody out there who, who may be, uh, you know, struggling, you know, with, with their work situation or family or, or whatever, but it's, you know, I'm just trying to keep a positive uh, uh, frame of mind about everything moving forward. Yeah. I mean, that's all we can do. And, and again, hearts go out and to everyone struggling with it right now. And I mean, it's just a different vibe. I definitely miss the uh, source meetups going to practice and, and all of our normal content. But at the end of the day, I think we're, we're pushing along. We still are putting out a lot of great stuff on the website and uh, it's definitely been, been different. And, and while it's been tough, I think at the end of the day, uh, we're, we're, we're getting through it as best as we can. And that kind of leads me, Chris, to our first point here in this podcast is the status of the fall football season. We didn't have uh, Camp Tanazona. We didn't get the, the preseason camp as normal. August 11th comes around. The Big Ten and Pac-12 obviously postpone college football to the spring. The other conferences still kind of pushing on as normal. What is the status of of the college football season in those two conferences across the power five as of right now? Well, there's a lot more immediate challenges for the three power five conferences that are trying to play this month um, related to just trying to, to be, be, be thorough with their, their protocols around testing, keeping everybody like in a good place, um, you know, making sure that now that students are back at a lot of these schools, that that added challenge isn't uh, causing problems within football. It has at a lot of places, actually. Uh, we've seen stories of a lot more kids um, uh, on campuses, you know, just not really heeding any of the, the, the warnings about big gatherings, parties, et cetera. And then there's probably gonna, just gonna be natural carryover to players at a lot of these places. Um, but what I think is important for, for ASU fans and for Pac-12 fans and Big Ten, Big Ten fans essentially is watching to see if these first couple weeks are able to happen uh, without too much of a, of a problem for the other three conferences, SEC, ACC, Big 12. And, um, and if so, uh, I think that's going to inform the process for the, the Big Ten and Pac-12 quite a bit. Uh, I, I think it's even conceivable, not saying that this will happen, but it's conceivable that they may uh, start to review their plan and could possibly look at moving up the starts of their games to perhaps late October or maybe even early November. Um, ASU's challenges uh, are a lot less than some of these other schools. And when I, what I mean is 
this in Tempe, they're in the weight room and they're still, they're training and they're going through walkthroughs that are pretty aggressive and all of that in California, the, the rules are a lot stricter. And so the, the players at those four schools, they're not even able to take part in uh, weight room strength and conditioning program stuff. So that needs to sort of be worked out in a way that can get those guys ready for a season in the event that these other three conferences are able to get off the ground and, and, uh, and start having some success um, with, with um, getting into their seasons. And I don't know that all that stuff can, can be worked out, but I do believe that with the, the, the increased proliferation of these $5 uh, Abbott tests and the saliva tests that they have at ASU and elsewhere that get you a much more rapid uh, 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 results and are a lot cheaper, uh, that that is a, a major uh, boost. And especially when they become a lot more widely available, I think some people have been following what's been going on with the federal government having this certain, you know, several hundred thousand or maybe it's over a million, uh, it could be even more than that, uh, of the initial uh, uh, tests uh, from Abbott, um, you know, and, and determining kind of where those are allocated may even be like 20 something million or something. I forget the exact number, but it's a lot. And how the, the pack, the big 10, um, you know, has now become sort of a political football, so to speak, uh, um, no pun intended around, around this whole issue. Uh, but I do think that when you have, if you can get these, this testing to be very widely available and easy uh, and because of how cost effective that it is in all of these conferences, if that's able to be scaled up to where it could happen in the next like maybe two months, I think that that, that makes the liability issues associated with playing much less to the colleges because they can then test theoretically every single day, all of everybody on their team. I think that would make it a, a much easier path. Now, the uh, cardio uh, um, uh, issues that are have been associated uh, um, with you know uh, with people who do get the coronavirus at, at, in some in some instances you know it's a small in, number of instances I guess but still um, you know meaningful number that is that have concerned the doctors particularly in the Pac-12. Um, 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 I think that's that's a whole nother sort of a, a factor that you have to consider the the um, myocarditis, uh, and so um, that is something where they're going to get additional information over more time about kind of the symptoms and how long that they are tending to last and those kinds of things. But if you can sort of reduce the number of instances on your team by having daily testing which also then reduces the um, liability concerns. I think that those are the ways by which we start to get into a more uh, a feasible uh, um, uh, glide slope toward uh, playing football again at some point, whether or not that is an, an expedited thing in, in you know, late this year or whether that doesn't happen until January or February, I'm still not sure yet. I do think that it has become increasingly a little bit more likely as, as we've moved on. Um, but 
if they don't, if they aren't able to successfully play in these other three conferences, that would be a major dagger uh, to this being able to happen. I think, I think um, those, those uh, three conferences are sort of clearing the way, uh, so to speak, for the other two. Right, and the, the positive developments from that new kind of form of testing, obviously a step in the right direction, but a lot still unknown in terms of projecting when the, the Pac-12 and Big Ten might end up playing. But even in the SEC, which is a conference that is still set to play in the fall, several players from LSU specifically have opted out of playing at all. So I wanted to ask you, Chris, if, if there's potential uh, specifically for, for ASU of this happening and really your thoughts on players opting out across college football. It's not the least bit surprising. Um, I, I, I've seen a lot of analysis out there that is saying that players who are first, second round draft picks, they, they probably shouldn't be playing this year. Um, Right, and at LSU specifically, Jamar Chase, who's considered by many to be like the top wide receiver in the nation, was one who did opt out. So Yeah, and there's even you know some players who are not that solidified. Georgia, one of its two quarterbacks competing for the starting job just today, uh, decided to opt out, and he had he wasn't even like a solidified starter. I just think that you're 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 just going to have that. And but I, for ASU, I, I think there's not that many kids who probably would do that. There's almost no kids who are, you know, in very good position for the NFL draft. There's no, like, first or second day locks. And so that means that a lot of these guys, most of these guys, they still have a lot that they have to prove. And especially given that this year is not going to count against anyone from an eligibility standpoint for the NCAA. Um, I think that that's another sort of indicator that ASU – uh, players are more apt to uh, wait it out and even come back next year if necessary, including some, uh, you know, we'll, the, the biggest question is going to be what happens with some of these key seniors, uh, Frank Darby, Chase Lucas, Jack Jones, you know, I'm thinking about them primarily, it, maybe Evan Fields. Like if there is no football, do they still come back and play in 2021? I'm not sure about that. Um, I think that, you know, a few guys may leave, but, um, you know, I don't think that you're going to see as many kids leave ASU as are leaving at some of these other prominent schools, including even maybe in the, in the Pac-12 at the end of the day. I could see more kids from Oregon, USC, et cetera, leaving. So in that respect, given the youth of ASU's roster, how many of the important players are juniors, sophomores, I think you could see uh, – ASU's roster benefit relative to its peers in the conference in 2021 and maybe even 2022. Right. And that's an important element there just with the USC's and the Oregon's having several players who have the potential to be top draft picks and, and building out depth, um, especially Chris with the, with the eligibility factor of players Retaining that and then the 85 scholarship limit not necessarily being a factor for seniors next year. Can you get a little bit more into that? It's so funny because for the last two years now or more, we've been talking about ASU being historically low on scholarships uh, relative to that 85 number because there's, there's been so much attrition, you know, transfers and guys who decide medically to no longer play much more than ever. 
but they haven't increased the 25 new scholarship enrollment cap uh, every year. And so what's happened is it, these teams are, have been, and ASU is a good example of that, have been off operating with, at a net loss in uh, a few recent years. The coaching turnover tends to really uh, uh, increase that. So the last year of Graham, the first year to two years of Herm Edwards, you then go through this major uh, roster purge slash remake. And so ASU last season was very low on, on scholarship players. And this year uh, is around 77, 78 scholarship players, um, which is, you know, working your way back up to where what's normal, but normal really is, you know, right at 85 or just a few under that. And so What's happened now, the rule that you're talking about and, and I mentioned earlier is the NCAA is basically giving everybody a do-over this year, no matter how much football is played. So some conferences, maybe they play, you know, 10 games or more. Other conferences, maybe they play not at all or they play several games. Um, but regardless of what that is, everybody is going to basically be the same year for NCAA eligibility in 2021 as they are in 20, uh, um, 2020. The difference, though, is that um, this is going to affect uh, the rosters a lot because teams are still going to be able to sign 25 guys. That's not changing either. And the only um, um, scholarship exemption relief that's being given to these teams is on seniors. So this year's seniors who would then be seniors again next year, eligibility-wise, uh, above the 85. So if you have 10 seniors above the 85, you could theoretically have 95 guys on scholarship in 2021, okay? ASU has 13 seniors, I believe, right now projected to be on the team this year. Uh, I don't think all of them will be back next year. Probably will be closer to 10, you know, give or take. Um, so that means ASU is going to be able to be, you know, at, a, at a, right around a 95 type of a number. But with 75 on the roster this year and then trying to add 25 more, you quickly see that you're going to be over. So what you're going to have happen is teams are going to um, you know, they're going to have the normal amount of attrition every year, which, you know, it's in recent years, that's tended to be maybe five, seven scholarships, guys transferred apart, stop playing for whatever. And then you're going to have some guys who get their degrees from ASU, but their reserves, and they're not going to be have their scholarships renewed. Uh, ASU doesn't have to renew the scholarships on guys after four years if they have their degrees or five years in any circumstance. So um, it really, it's four years, but this year doesn't really count. So that's why it's five. So, um, so what I'm trying to say though, essentially is that ASU and, and really most schools should actually be able to optimize their rosters and be very flush on talent uh, in uh, 2021 and especially 2022, 2023. And uh, ASU is in a really good place to be able to take advantage of that because also they've been uh, signing some of their best classes in recent history. Um, 2019 was a, a very good class. Um, those 2020, a very a good class. And those are your youngest players that are going to be on your roster this year. Uh, 2021 looks like it's also going to be 
potentially a top 25 class. So we could see ASU emerge from this whole pandemic in the next year with one of its best overall rosters in terms of talent and depth. And you highlight the recruiting rankings for ASU in the last couple of years. I kind of want to transition into that next. And earlier you were kind of talking about the coaching turnover roster attrition that's associated with that. And under Edwards, it seems like, sure, there's been a normal amount of uh, attrition, but our Jacob Rudner, if you go to the homepage of our site, he did write a, a great story analyzing the recruiting efforts over the last three staffs before Edwards, uh, those obviously being Dirk Cutter, Dennis Erickson, and Todd Graham, all of which had three straight classes of a top 30 recruiting ranking nationally. So, Chris, you kind of mentioned it, touch on it a little bit. Edwards does appear to be approaching that same third-year top 30. How would you evaluate how he's compared to, to those other staffs and, and moving forward as well? Yeah, I definitely recommend everybody reading that because it goes into the, the challenges and what ultimately happened for each of the three predecessors uh, to Edwards at ASU. So you go all the way back to Dirk Cutter, um, 2001, um, comes in, has a lot of success in recruiting, especially on the offensive side. In 2002, three, four, that was also before a lot of teams started to really aggressively compete with ASU in Arizona for top talent. It really kind of changed during the Erickson, during the, pardon me, during the, the Cutter uh, era uh, into Erickson. And then, um, and then uh, they really petered out because um, they just didn't have enough uh, of, a, of a, a, a competitive staff in terms of recruiting, they didn't do a good enough job with defensive recruiting, Cutter very offensive-minded, and some of these other associated challenges. And so they kind of petered out. Then you, you look at Dennis Erickson. Um, you know, he had uh, some, some, some success also kind of early on, put three pretty good classes together. Uh, but a few of those players didn't qualify academically. They had too much of a burden on their top recruiter, Matt Lubick, who then left after, I think, three years at ASU to go to Duke. And uh, some disciplinary problems with the team and, and just some other headwinds that they kind of ran into also stagnated their recruiting, and then they kind of petered out. And, and then with Todd Graham, you had a, a, essentially a uh, – um, a little slower uh, run-up to his three good classes in a row, which were 2014, 15, and 16. But they were overly reliant on junior college players, and they weren't as successful recruiting uh, um, good enough high school players that they could develop in the program while those junior college players were flourishing. And then what happened is they ran out of luck with the best junior college players at the same time as realizing that their high school players that they had recruited were not ready to be successful. And then they had a big talent void coupled with other problems that, uh, that happened in terms of how much coaching turnover that they lost, um, losing some of their best recruiters all in one felt swoop in one year when Norvell, Chip Long, Chris Ball, TJ Rushing all left and how much turnover that they had, partly a product of their own successes uh, with the two 10-win back-to-back seasons uh, a couple of years before that. 
but um, but yeah, they really kind of ran into a bad place. So when you look at, as we sort of project out for Edwards and we do analysis of kind of how things are shaping up this year, this 2021 class looks to be like their third straight class in a row, which the three predecessors all, all, all were able to accomplish. But there are some key differences in terms of the, the, the makeup of the staff how they were able to overcome some staff losses with very good recruiting additions that maybe have actually even upgraded uh, their overall recruiting capability. Everybody knows that Antonio Pierce is a one of the best recruiters probably in the conference, but now with uh, Chris Hawkins and Prentice Gill, um, there's – a legitimate question about whether or not this is ASU's best recruiting staff in decades. And both of those guys are very highly regarded and they're getting kids in this class. And this is their first year. And typically what happens is it, once you get up to speed, it's the second and third year at a, at a place at a school where you can have the most success. So there's the, the analysis of this and you can read it for a lot more kind of in depth perspective is really that ASU may be, um, better situated to put together four straight classes of successful recruiting than any of the, 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 the three most recent coaches at ASU. Right. And, and VIP members can go read the full story once again on the site and we'll have much more perspective and analysis on, on the devil sanctuary VIP board and in subsequent premium podcasts. And Chris, it kind of sets up the 2022 recruiting class really well for ASU, as you mentioned, as guys get more comfortable in their roles on, on the coaching staff and as recruiters. Some of these younger coaches, though, already bring in additions that are highly ranked and, and in, in their first class. It's, it's been impressive to see. And overall, I think a big emphasis has been placed on the recruiting department in terms of uh, the creativity, graphic design, and that was evidenced by the beginning of the contact period for the 2022 class on September 1st obviously with ASU reaching out to a lot of their targets in that class. What did you make of the designs that, that you saw, the edits that were made, the video that was produced, um, and, and all the takeaways from those things? So really, Mason, for a long time now, I would say going back at least five years, probably even longer than that, I was saying that ASU was uh, not keeping up with the best programs in the country at uh, building out a really robust uh, uh, design component on the back end of what they're doing in recruiting. And that really is the graphic design, the video production that, uh, that attracts recruits to your program, both in terms of uh, the, what you directly send them like these edits that these kids put up that are specific to each school that has their stuff, their, their face and image and name and all kinds of fancy different ways. Uh, and also in terms of just the, how flashy and just uh, attention grabbing a lot of these things are from a marketing type of a standpoint. Um, there, the, the way that recruiting used to work is that these kids would get flooded with mail Okay, but nobody really ever saw the mail because it's just going to them. Maybe they would take a picture of it and, and put it out somewhere. What happened really with the, the social media 
revolution that's taken place in this country, especially Twitter and Instagram, is these kids have taken a lot more ownership of their recruitments in recent years. They've put out so much, so many more of the, the, the graphics and videos that are done on their behalf, either by schools or by independent people that are just looking to build up their own businesses or brands or whatever. And those things have just tremendous value in terms of how these uh, programs are perceived. And this uh, has been something that ASU has been very slow uh, relative to its peers to embrace and fully adapt to prior to the Herm Edwards being hired. And then when, when Edwards was hired and Antonio Pierce and the, the, the composition of the staff and understanding sort of how to connect to some of these teenagers in a you know, more natural, easier way while also reflecting well on the program, they started to put out, people remember they put posters in all these schools and they started to do all these videos that, where they were using drones and stuff of them out recruiting. And <clears throat> these, these are the types of, of things that build a buzz with the, um, you know, the, um, you know the, the people who have the most clout in the industry and then the top recruits. That's the way that they make their, their, their opinions. And so what, what they're now doing is they're going really even to the next level uh, with all this. And they're starting to get some of the, uh, the most successful people who have ever been involved in this space at other schools uh, contracted to help them on some work that they're doing at ASU. So um, essentially what's, what's happened is the most important person at ASU on uh, this whole, you know, in this whole process um, is Radman Niven, who's in charge of the, the creative design for ASU football. And um, what he did is he uh, reached out and was able to get some contract work done with uh, two really important people, one of whom is Samuel Silverman, who for a long time, I think seven years, was in charge of Ohio State football's uh, design for a 2022 class branding operation. Um, you know, there's a whole, like, they call it feeling devilish. And it's, it, it's a fonting and a color scheming, graphic design scheming around, <clears throat> pardon me, everything that they're able to do with their hashtag devilish22 sort of way of outreaching to recruits. And then what they did is that they, within a, uh, several days of releasing that, <clears throat> pardon me, they put out this uh, video, which a lot of people have seen, which uh, received some, some shooting and cinemato cinematography help from Ty Rogers, who is a content creator who has worked with Cam Newton and a bunch of hip hop artists, um, you know, with, uh, their, with videos or concerts and things of that nature. And he previously worked for Michigan football and because all these recruits can't visit right now because of the pandemic and there's rules that have been in place that prevent on-campus visits uh, all the way back to March uh, until through the end of September at least and potentially beyond that, um, it's a way of showing recruits 
what it's like to be a player at ASU, the facilities, the, 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 the tour of the campus, the surrounding areas, the amenities, the it's lifestyle. It's kind of like a mock official visit in a way. Antonio Pierce even says in the video, welcome for your official visit or something along those lines. Yeah, he picks up a, you know, a, a, a what would be a recruit at, at Sky Harbor Airport in a Bentley. He takes him to the team hotel on a Friday night, what it would be like before game. Then they go to, to Sun Devil Stadium. Um, after taking a tour of the surrounding areas, seeing downtown, seeing all the pro sports teams that they have, the things that you can do, how close all these things are. Derek Hagan, ASU's offensive uh, uh, assistant, coaches tight ends primarily. He takes everybody on a tour of the, the football facilities and, and they see the campus and all that stuff. And then they go uh, into uh, Herm Edwards and, you know, interfacing with Sparky in his office and talking about Brandon Ayuk being a, you know, first round pick last year who played, you know, was recruited by and played for this team. So it's, it's just a way of, of uh, elevating their brand, uh, connecting with recruits. And this, this is why Mason, the ASU coaches feel like they're best positioned to be able to take advantage of the 2022 class of they've been on campus a few years they've been recruiting a lot of these top guys for a year or two and um they have all of these sorts of uh, uh strategies and techniques in their arsenal that they're now able to like fully release coupled with having what they believe to be their best recruiting staff and the success that they've had on the field um you know, year over year improvements where they project this year. We'll see what happens with the season, but just the, that the, all of these things in terms of an overall trajectory. Right. And the crazy thing about the video to me was that Ty Rogers, obviously the, the creator who shot and, and helped Rodman with the, the ideation of it and the creation, the editing, all that stuff. He got in on the 26th, so he flew to Tempe on the 26th, and it was released yesterday, uh, as we're recording this on September 2nd, it was released September 1st. So not a huge window of time for this five-and-a-half-plus-minute video uh, to be shot and, and produced, and, and the end result was uh, really impressive, in my opinion. And recruits were, were tweeting about it and putting it on their Instagram stories and, and sharing it um, from the 2021 class and 2022 class as well. So definitely some positive feedback uh, on the video. But transitioning now, Chris, I want to get touch on basketball a little bit, and especially uh, we, we've touched on the, the status of the football season, but the Pac-12 also, when they announced that fall football would be canceled, they also postponed all fall sports until January 1st. But some rumors, some, some reporting from CBS's John Rothstein that, that the Men's and Women's Basketball Oversight Committee they're proposing a date of November 25th for the start of basketball. What are you hearing on the potential start of the Pac-12 basketball season? Right. So actually, we have sources uh, working at some of these Pac-12 schools who have told us that uh, the coaches are having ongoing dialogue about this uh, exact thing because they don't want to not – not necessarily all of them, but at least some of the coaches in the Pac-12, they don't want to not be proactive about this. They, they want to make sure that if other conferences are playing basketball, say the last week of November or the first week of December, that they also are able to get that experience and start to ramp up as a um, you know with some games that get them ready for their conference play and try their having conversations about how they can do that successfully 
while still making sure that all their players are healthy and safe and, and everything. And so I think what is probably going to end up happening is they, they will at some point, uh, probably sooner than later, interact with the Pac-12 about this subject in an effort to try to make sure that they're being heard and that the Pac-12 is, is, um, has a chance at least, or at least consider strongly being more in line with what's happening with other conferences around basketball. You know, Mason, with basketball, there's, uh, there's a lot more moving parts. You have dramatically fewer players. You have uh, the ability to sort of, I think, control it a little bit more in terms of just, you know, how many uh, extrapolated interactions and people around the team that there are. And then the NBA has shown that if you really do uh, maintain a bubble, uh, which is you know, you can't do that in the same way in college, but you can still do it more easily, I think, than football, given that you have 10 to 20% of the number of people involved in the whole operation. Um, I, I think they just want to try to make sure that they're, uh, that they're ramping up and they're, and they're considering it. Um, again, they have some of these schools have problems and that they can't use the weight room and some of these things in California. Uh, I, I even heard that uh, one or more of the schools in the Pac-12 schools in California are doing outdoor workouts because they're able to do those, but they can't do indoor workouts, for example, uh, in order to make sure that they're still like trying to be in the best shape that they are for whenever a season starts. I do think at the end of the day, the college basketball is so important to the NCAA's overall budget and bottom line that they will be, and they have more time to, to get to that point where they're playing basketball. I think that there will be a season in some form. I just am not able to say exactly with any confidence what that's going to look like, but I could see more games played where teams meet in one location, not just two teams, maybe a bunch of teams that meet in a location and they basically hang out in their own sort of bubbles. Like maybe you go to Vegas, a bunch of teams in November to December and you play, you know, four or five teams twice or three times maybe even to get a bunch of games in over the course of a month before you get to conference play. And then maybe in conference play, you go to certain locations and you play teams twice uh, as opposed to just playing them once. And uh, so that there's less travel, there's less moving parts, but you maybe still get most of your games in and you have less movement and less travel and less of the associated things that could introduce more exposure uh, to the virus. Right. And that's an important point, obviously. And, and so many moving parts, just like you mentioned, with, with college basketball specifically. And uh, we'll be sure and update everyone on, on what information we hear, as well as the prospects of when the season might start. Obviously, ASU fans wanting this season to happen on schedule after bringing in their, their top-ranked two-man recruiting class, number one prospect of all time in Josh Christopher, and then a, a, almost a five-star in Marcus Bagley, as well as some of these other guys they brought in. But even more importantly, Importantly, Chris, the return of Remy Martin, which we which we touched on last podcast, but Andy Katz ranked Remy Martin as the number four returning player in all of college basketball. What did you make of that, and uh, what were what was your impression of that that ranking? Yeah, I I just um, it's so fascinating, right? Because what we've seen is more and more kids are staying in college less and less time, 
kind of on average, right? Um, like Stanford had their first one and done player. Duke had like no one and done players until, you know, the last decade. And then now they have like all kinds of one and done players. Um, Kentucky's made their, you know, they, they were like the first at basically having all like, like half dozen one and done guys like on their roster. And, um, but this has become so common now that it's, it's increasingly rare to have really great players who are four-year guys at, at your school. And so when you look around the country, usually what it is, it's guys who uh, they have some sort of either physical or athletic thing that is maybe a bit limiting to how they project to the NBA, but yet they are still extremely dominant at the college level, usually from kind of early on. Right. So um, you look at like Marcus Howard, very good example, uh, just a, a player who's from Arizona that a lot of people will know locally, goes to Marquette, becomes the career all time leading scorer in four years. Still not a first round draft pick type of a guy, probably because he's, you know, 5'10", 5'11", kind of short arms. Athletically, there's some questions, even though he's like an elite shooter. Uh, which is, you know, there's high value on that right now in, in the NCAA, I mean, in, in the NBA. But um, so Remy Martin, I, I guess, like, I was a little bit surprised to see that he's a top five returning guy. But then you look at, like, the other candidates and you go, oh, okay, that kind of makes sense because so many of them, again, they really have moved on. I mean, the top five, it was like, um, you know, uh, Luca Garza was number one. Uh, he's, you know, the returning uh, Big Ten Player of the Year, and then you have um, a, cu- a couple of guys from Illinois, which, you know, they haven't been like a super prominent national powerhouse in recent years, but two of them are in the top ten. You got uh, uh, Jared Butler at, at number three, and uh, at Baylor, and he wasn't even like a first team All Conference player last year at Baylor as a freshman. I believe I think he was a second team guy and all freshman guy because maybe he was a freshman of the year in the conference. And then McKinley Wright is number eight who kind of actually had a little bit of a down year at Colorado. I was expecting him to do more last year. So look, Remy Martin is the leading returning scorer in the PAC 12. Uh, the PAC 12 had a good year last year. I think they were going to get five or six teams into the tournament, maybe even seven, but, five or six for sure. And, uh, and so they were doing well. And so to see the leading returning scorer, a guy who was a legitimate candidate to, you know, until the last two or three weeks of the season to be Pac-12 player of the year, come back and then be in the top 10 at a minimum, or maybe the top five, not a surprise, uh, I guess, when you look at it uh, in that respect. And it just goes to your, the point that you made at the outset, uh, when you couple that with Alonzo Verge, and uh, with the, the, the incoming freshman duo that is, you know, extremely uh, uh, intriguing uh, in Josh Christopher and, and uh, Marcus Bagley, um, man, ASU is got to be a preseason top 25 team talent-wise, maybe top 15 or top 20. And um, if you're an ASU fan, you, you got to be super excited about seeing what happens with this team this year if they can uh, get in some form of the season and the postseason. Right. I mean, I kind of tend to agree with you in terms of 
initially when Martin's ranking came out, it kind of took me back. But again, looking at the other candidates and the other returning players in college basketball, he, he's so important for the prospects of this ASU team. And I think it's, it's really just a, a testament to the cohesion and the recruiting that Bobby Hurley has, has brought to ASU, really turning the program around from, from a national perspective. But that's going to wrap up, Chris, this edition of the Sun Devil Source Report Podcast. For site publisher Chris Cartman, I'm Mason Kern saying so long and thank you for tuning in.